The three wisdoms, that's what this uh, first session is about. Why are we talking about this subject? Well, if you're a student and you're on a contemporary university campus, presumably you've gone to university not just because of um, the social life you hope to have or because you are going to get a credential that will be useful, but above all because you desire to know something. And in fact, that's also what animates the spirit of the Thomistic Institute, a desire to know and to go to the great teachers of wisdom in order to acquire some of that knowledge. So that's what we're beginning this summer conference talking about. Uh, what is knowledge? What is wisdom? How do we find it? Where can we go to acquire it? Aquinas follows Aristotle by beginning to talk about our intellectual activity with a kind of very general observation. Every person, every human person by, by nature desires to know. And we experience a kind of wonder when we encounter reality. Now, some of this may be things that you've already thought about or reflected on, but it's nice to go back to the beginning and reflect on it really from the starting point. You can just think about your own experiences. Think about, uh, for me, growing up in Seattle, the experience of going to the seashore, going to the ocean, and looking at the ocean. There's something that provokes a kind of marvel or a kind of wonder when you have that experience. I don't know how often you've had that sort of experience. Why is that? I was asking myself that as I was thinking about this talk. I think perhaps it's because it's so vast. We get some sense of the awesome magnitude of the world that we live in. At least for me, I mean, what I think I have often experienced in looking at the ocean is there's a kind of yearning for the ability to grasp it all, to be able to take it all in, to comprehend it. And that is very different from thinking, I'd like to pass through every square yard of the ocean's surface. That's not really what I think when I look at the ocean from the seashore or look at a cliff overlooking the ocean and get this magnificent view of, of this sea that stretches beyond the horizon. Rather, it's somehow a desire to want to grasp the whole of it somehow. And we marvel because we recognize that we're not really capable of grasping the whole. It's too big for us, and it makes us relative to it. Relative to it in, in a way, a kind of way of knowing, it's a different kind of being relative to the ocean than when you're in the surf and you get slammed by a wave. Uh, that also has been an experience that I've had. That also provokes a certain kind of wonder, but it's more the wonder like, am I gonna get out of this alive? Um, which, which has, if you've ever been pulled down by, by a wave, you might actually have that, that fear. Or if you're out on the ocean and you're in the middle of a storm, this happened to me once in a sailboat, uh, and there were strikes of lightning crashing down all around the boat, uh, and we were headed back for the port. I was with a group of, of other people here in, Washington, here in Washington, D.C. We were out on the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, when we got back, we, we had lunch together. The storm by then had passed, and we were eating fried chicken at a picnic table. And everyone was saying, um, this, was, this was like just before I entered the Dominican Order. Everyone was saying, wow, that's, uh, you know, that was so frightening. I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. 
Um, you know, it's a different kind of grasp of, of your finitude than you get when you're looking uh, over uh, the horizon at the ocean. But for me, actually, they, they said, well, you didn't seem like you were that frightened. And I said, you know, I have just discerned that God is calling me to the priesthood. And that has been such a, such a difficult period in my life to pass through that I could not imagine that God would kill me just before I, <laughs> before I became a priest. So I was very serene, actually. <laughs> but back to the view of the ocean. You know, that we, we can have a similar experience if you, if you stand on the summit of a mountaintop. You get a kind of overview. And especially if it's beautiful countryside. I mean, imagine going to a, a mountaintop in Tuscany, something like that. You see, you see the beautiful countryside below you. Or in Switzerland, uh, you get the beautiful meadows and the little Swiss villages and the, the, uh, the beautiful glaciers and so forth. You gaze on it. People go to the trouble to go to the top of mountains just to get that view. And you might ask, well, what's the purpose of doing that? Why do they do that? And people might give various answers because it's there. Um, but it's not really a practical activity. You go there because you want to be at the top and you want to see the world from that perspective. We can, I think, also talk about the stars. That's a common enough experience, especially for us city dwellers, to go out into the country. If you've had that experience of being out in the country where it's very dark and all of a sudden you come out at night and you look up and you're amazed at the, the vastness of the field of stars that you see, or if you're able to see the Milky Way. Uh, that is wonderful. It's the heavens filled with a kind of mysterious light. It's stable. It seemingly has a kind of continual motion, and yet it's, it's a kind of realm that we cannot access directly. Even if we can send spacecraft there, uh, it's very hard for any one of us to get there. I've had to come to grips with the fact that I'm not ever going to make it to the moon <laughs> or to Mars. We might send more people to those places, but I don't think they're going to choose me. So this is a kind of wonder. It's a wonder at what is real. Or you might say at the whole of what is. I think that's what these kinds of experience provoke in us. And it bespeaks a, a desire to grasp not just some part or to zoom in and analyze the smallest things, although there can be wonder found in that too. If you've ever looked at things through a microscope and you begin to see the harmony that you find even in, in very, very small things, things that the eye cannot see. But rather a kind of wonder and desire to grapple with the whole and not just that it is, but also, in a certain way, to ask more profoundly what it means or why it is. And when you begin asking these kinds of questions, you are, you are engaging in philosophy, at least philosophy the way Aristotle and Aquinas understood it and spoke of it. So philosophy begins with wonder, and it seeks to know. And this is something that the human being is made for. Aquinas would say, we have intellects precisely so that we can know. And not only know for a practical purpose, like so that we can build a better house 
or build a better mousetrap or build a better airplane or something like that, but simply so that we would know, so that we would understand, so that we would in some way uh, begin to gain wisdom. All right, so this uh, kind of wonder and encounter with the world often provokes a further but intimately related set of questions, questions just as perennial, which is about myself or about what a human being is. Who am I? What is a human being? Where have I come from? Where am I going? What should I do? How should I live? You might think of the portal of the temple at Delphi, this famous, uh, you know, recounted by many authors, inscribed over this temple portal, the inscription, Know Thyself. Uh, This might be, in a certain way, a path to wisdom. Or you might think of Socrates saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. These kinds of questions, I think, are related questions about what is, wanting to know the whole of what is, and also, how should I live? Who am I in relation to what is? So from there, I'd like to speak then about uh, what you find in Aquinas when he discusses wisdom, and really three types of wisdom that Aquinas thinks is uh, available to us as human creatures. The first kind of wisdom, and I'll just sort of briefly uh, mention them, and then we're going to spend most of the rest of today uh, speaking in this session, speaking about the the first kind of wisdom, which is philosophical wisdom, or you might say metaphysical wisdom. Philosophy itself is uh, a search for wisdom. Of course, you you probably know this. The word philosophy itself means uh, love of wisdom. And that means it's a much broader category than philosophy as you normally encounter it in, say, today's academic departments. So philosophy really encompasses or or is, is capable of addressing all of reality to know the truth, to know the meaning of things, the order in things, the order of reality, ultimately the causes of things. Aristotle explains that uh, we think that we have sufficiently explain something when we ask the question why and he thinks that there's certain or when we are able to answer the question why and he thinks there's four kinds of distinct answers to that question four fundamental different kinds of answers which give rise to the teaching you find in Aristotle and in Aquinas about the four causes and philosophy in a way inquires into these four causes. Now, why do I bring this up here? Because it's fundamental to going deeper into reality than you might at first think of if you think of, say, contemporary natural science or experimental science, which doesn't always ask about all of these questions. And that might be a way that we could begin to understand what philosophy is doing when it addresses some of the same subject matter in a certain sense, some of the same Uh, things that experimental science will investigate, philosophy can investigate, but it investigates it, I would propose, in a, a, uh, at least Aristotelian or Thomistic philosophy, would investigate it in a sort of deeper mode or a deeper way, and precisely because it's interested 
in the four causes or the four ways we can answer a question about the why of a thing. This is very simple to explain with a, with a straightforward example. So consider a house. You know, you have a house. You might ask, why? Why is that house there? Or why is it a house? What is the explanation of the house? Well, on a certain level, we could give an explanation based on what the house is built of. It's built of stones and wood and maybe tile on the roof or something like that. This would be accounting for the house in terms of what it's made of or its matter, and that would be the material cause of the house. In a certain way, what is the cause of the house being there? It's the, it's the wood and the stones and the mortar and the, the tiles. That's the material cause. That's one way of answering the question, why is the house there? It's there because of those constituent parts. But a further answer might be, well, it's there because of the uh, builder who put those things together. So we could think about how the thing actually was caused in the sense of coming to be. And there we'd be talking about the efficient cause, who made it effectively. So these are the first two causes, the material cause and the efficient cause. Now, for the most part, contemporary natural science investigates those causes and often does it with a great deal of rigor, but often will not try to go too far beyond those causes. It depends on the science you're speaking about, so they're, 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 this is perhaps a disputable point, but I think you can say in general, experimental sciences in the, in the modern idiom uh, or the modern version of them that we, that we know are principally concerned with these dimensions. But Aquinas thinks and Aristotle think, thinks that there is another set of, there's two more uh, sorts of answers to give to this question why. And if you think about the house, one answer would be, well, what is a house? Or what is the, the form of house? What is intelligible about a house? In a certain sense, the cause of the house is the design of the house. So the blueprint, or you might even take a step back further than that and think of the idea in the mind of the architect who designed the house. He first had an idea of what he wanted to build or what he wanted the builders to build even before he began sketching it on the paper that would become the blueprint. Now it's interesting when you begin to think about uh, this type of answer to the question, why is this a house? Because now we're talking about some, something that is really abstracted from matter and we're talking about uh, something that is intelligible. So it's the form of the house. Not just the shape of the house, not just the physical configuration, but actually the, the idea of what a house is. So in a way, when we're talking about form or the formal cause, and that's this third cause, we're talking about what it is or the essence of a thing. And notice that if you were going to build a house, you don't start with the material cause. You don't just start with wood and stones. Uh, that by itself, a pile of wood or a pile of stones is not, is not yet a house. 
it needs efficient causality to put those things in order. But you don't just start putting those things uh, together. You don't start nailing one board to another without any idea of what you're doing. You're guided by the blueprint. In other words, you have to have first stepped back and thought about what you were about to do. So it's a kind of metaphysical law, I would suggest, that all activity that is efficiently causing is guided by some kind of formal causality. Certainly that's true about our intentional activity. Everything that we do as an efficient cause has some idea in our minds that is guiding our activity. So uh, if you're building a house, there's always some idea of the house in your mind. If you're making a chest of drawers or something, there's always an idea of that that exists in your mind. And actually, you're able to judge what you produce by reference to the idea that you had. So I don't know if you've ever, you know, maybe certainly back in grade school, were asked to draw a picture. Now, some, some of you are probably artists and very good at drawing pictures. I'm terrible at drawing pictures. So somebody tells me to draw a picture of, of a house with the sun and a cow outside or something like that. Um, I can draw something very rudimentary. I mean, I could draw a cow on the board here for you. you. I would have to tell you it's a cow before you'd be able to figure it out, right? And what might I say after I've drawn it? Well, uh, that didn't really live up to, my, to the idea I had of it that I was trying to express. Our efficient causality, in a certain way, can be judged by the idea that we have in our minds so that we, we use the idea in our minds to sort of judge how well we did the efficient causality how well we, we actually caused the thing to come about in matter. But even this is not a final explanation of the house. And it's probably obvious to you that there's a further reason for the house. That is, what is the house for? That's why you built the house in a certain sense. You built it in order to have shelter or in order to make it a home. This is a different kind of answer than answering what the house is made of or who made the house or by referring to the blueprint. Here now you're talking about what is called the final cause. That for the sake of which, the reason for the house. Now Aquinas and Aristotle think that when you've answered these four kinds of questions or if, when you've answered the question why by reference to these four kinds of answers, you have really gained a deeper understanding of the reality that you're dealing with. You're on the way to wisdom because you are understanding the causes of things. And by cause, we don't just mean what we typically talk about in today's parlance. The cause of a thing really probably just refers to the efficient cause. No, the causes of things refers to, in a way, a, a deeper explanation of the thing. You might even say it explains in a certain way the order that is in the thing and also why it's there, what is intelligible about the thing, as well as how it came about and what it's made of. So philosophy, properly speaking, uses the natural light of reason, the light of understanding that we have simply by virtue of being human beings, in order to understand the reality around us, especially by way of grasping the meaning of things. Now, this is already a, a mystery. 
if you think about the fact that we're able to know things. If we were to unpack that a little bit, we will have yet another step towards understanding uh, the kind of mystery of divine wisdom. That's where we're headed in, in speaking about this, not only the, the capacity of human beings to, to be wise, to know the meaning of things by the light of reason, but ultimately to have a certain sharing in the divine wisdom so that we would understand things with a much higher perspective, a much more penetrating insight, a kind of more powerful light. Those would be higher dimensions of wisdom that we're, that we're going to get to. But even if we just stay with human knowledge, knowledge that we have by our human nature, there are actually some wonderful mysteries there. Think, for, for example, uh, just at the, the threshold of our knowing about our perception, our sense perception. It's interesting just to meditate on our senses for a moment. The senses are irreducible to each other. Uh, so no amount of description by words will give you the kind of grasp, give you quite the same understanding of the reality in front of you as the sense of sight. The sense of sight is powerful in this way. If you're in a pitch black room, you can learn it in a certain way through touch, through hearing, but you'll grasp it much more immediately and as a whole when all of a sudden there's light and you can see. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, maybe you've had it even just here in this conference, being in a strange place and maybe being given a key to a door that you've never used before. And if you arrive late at night and you've got the key, you're trying to figure out how to get that key into the lock. It's, it's very frustrating. It's very hard to do. You have to sort of grope and feel, feel your way. And then when the light goes on, you immediately are able to do that very simply, very quickly. And that's, a, that's a, an amazing thing, that somehow light and the power of sight, the sense power of sight, gives us a kind of greater grasp of the reality than our other senses are able to give us. That's going to be important when we talk about the light of understanding, so let's hold that in mind for just a moment. We could, we could now talk about the difference between sense knowledge, or this kind of um, immediate uh, sensation, and how that kind of rises, we can sort of step up the ladder of knowledge. So we could start with just sense knowledge, and we could talk about, um, you know, an oak tree. Uh, a dog can wander by an oak tree and also perceive it by sense. So what's happening in the dog and what's happening in us when we see the oak tree? Well, the dog perceives the oak tree by sense, can make what Aquinas would call an estimative judgment about the oak tree, he, he's led by instinct to sniff the trunk, maybe to mark the oak tree. Uh, most of us don't do that. <laughs> the dog, in a certain way, knows by sensing the oak tree and knows this individual, this individual thing, but the dog doesn't know the essence of the oak tree, probably couldn't tell you the difference between an oak tree and a fir tree or an elm tree. 
and certainly isn't capable of grasping the significance of this oak tree. For example, it was planted by my great-grandfather. And so in a certain way, it's the oak tree that has witnessed generations of our family life in our family home's backyard. Or that the oak tree is beautiful in the summer and drops leaves in the fall and produces acorns. Or that if you cut the oak tree down, you could make a beautiful chest of drawers from it, something like that. These things are known by us when we come to know what an oak tree is, but not within the capacity of the dog to know. Why are we able to go further than the dog? Well, we have a higher light, and Aquinas uses the analogy of light to speak about our capacity to understand. So, the dog has sense impressions and a kind of sense imagination that is able to reproduce a an image, um, you might say a representative likeness of the tree. But the light of understanding proceeds from that representative image, which is also in our minds, a kind of imaginary representation that you can generate from your sense knowledge of the tree to understand the tree in some way. And this, uh, so to, to see Aquinas speaking about this, I'd like to refer to the first text on your handout. This is actually from Aquinas' commentary on the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so he begins asking about the nature of light and its relation to our minds. He says, the physical sun is a light that sense can perceive. And so it is not the highest light, which only the intellect can perceive, which is an intelligible light proper to the rational creature. Sensible light is a certain image of this intelligible light. That's very interesting. We might think that the light of the intellect is like the light of the sun. And in a certain way, we we understand what we mean when we talk about the light of the intellect because we've experienced the light of the sun. But Aquinas actually thinks that the priority runs in the other direction. The light of the sun, which produces sensible light, is actually a lower form than the higher reality, which is intelligible light. Let's continue with what he's written here. Just as through sensible light, the eye is made able to see, thus that intelligible light makes the intellect to know. And whatever light is in the rational creature is wholly derived from that supreme light which enlightens every man coming into the world. So that gives you a little foretaste of where we're headed. Ultimately, this is the light of God. Now, Aquinas thinks that by virtue of being created as human beings, we have received an imprint in our nature of the divine light, a certain partial participation, an imperfect sharing in that divine light. And we call this the light of natural reason. There were other medieval uh, thinkers, philosophers, and theologians who also spoke about this, but in a rather different way. So, for example, St. Bonaventure, the famous Franciscan, medieval Franciscan uh, theologian and philosopher, thought that 
in our acts of understanding, God had to constantly give us this, uh, this light from above. Aquinas disagreed with this idea that we don't possess the natural light of reason, but have to constantly receive new infusions of it because he, th- he thought that our human nature has already been constituted as capable of knowing, knowing intellectually. That is, we've been given as a part of our very essence the capacity to understand in some measure. And this we call a light. It's a light that shines on the sense perceptions, or actually the the images in our minds generated by our sense perceptions, generated by our imagination. As we sense things in the world, our imagination generates an image in our minds. And then our intellect shines something like a light on that image and is able to grasp something intelligible there. This deeper understanding, this grasp of something intelligible, cannot just be reduced to our sense perceptions. This is a very important point. Just as the sense of sight cannot be reduced to the sense of hearing and touch, but is in a way essentially different in what it gives us to know, so also the light of reason gives us to know something of a different order from what our senses can know. It knows based on what we have come to know through the senses, yes, our senses have to receive some sense impressions before our intellect has something to work on, as it were. But when it shines that intellectual light on what our mind has pictured, we now are able to penetrate more deeply into the reality and to understand something that, for example, the dog is not able to understand what it is. We understand not just this individual thing that I'm sensing that's brown on the bottom and green up above and has a certain smell, but we're sensing that this is a tree uh, because our senses generate a certain image and our intellect is then able to penetrate into what is intelligible in what we are sensing. So the light of reason gives us to penetrate more deeply into the reality in a way that's analogous to the way that by physical light we're able to see something more than, say, the sense of touch or the sense of smell can grasp. So we could say there is sense knowledge. That's the lowest level of knowledge, you might say. Then above that, there would be things like memory, sense memory. A dog has memories. It's why a fox, after a life of experience trying to get into the chicken coop, becomes crafty, seemingly prudent or wise, right, about how to get into the chicken coop, but not by way of abstraction, just by way of a lot of experience and memory of of what is the best path to something tasty. But our understanding, now this would be a kind of third level within the the level of natural knowledge, our understanding, this is of a different order and gives us not just an image, but you might say an idea. An idea that is much more powerful 
than what sense impressions can give us. And this actually, I think, helps us arrive at the difference between, you might say, purely empirical facts and real understanding. It's related to the four causes that we were talking about. Because you're only really able to answer those, that question why in those four different ways if you have some understanding. Certainly, if you're going to talk about what a thing is for or what its form is, that's the most uh, intellectual or intelligible dimension. I think this is all a way that brings us to some understanding of what is wisdom, the characteristics of wisdom or of the wise person. Someone who knows more than all others that which is accessible to our knowledge. Someone who knows even the most difficult things we would call wise, probably. Someone who knows these things with a greater degree of certitude. That would be a kind of wisdom. You might have a kind of man-on-the-street view, and then someone who has a deeper grasp and a greater certitude. But even more than this, someone who can assign causes to things, who can explain why. And therefore, someone who, in a certain sense, loves knowledge of the truth for its own sake. These would be all characteristics of the wise person. And someone who has all of those characteristics then would be a good person to order things, to arrange things. Why? Because that kind of person is going to understand how all the things fit together and therefore what the proper place of each is. What is the best arrangement of things? And these are all classic dimensions of wisdom. So this brings us now to Aquinas' definition of wisdom. This is in text number three. I've skipped over text number two, which you can read, which is about um, plant knowledge. I mean, plants can be, have sensation in the sense that they, they're you know, affected by the sunlight, but they don't have uh, imagination the way uh, a dog does. A dog receives sense impressions and is able to generate some kind of uh, likeness, representative likeness of the thing sensed. And then human beings are able to abstract from matter and understand immaterially what is intelligible. And that's only capable, uh, only, we're only able to do that because of the light of reason. That's, in summary, what text number two is saying. But now text number three, wisdom. There are a number of places where Aquinas talks about wisdom. I've just picked one of them. We could have picked a few others. Let's uh, read this together. According to the philosopher, as you know, that's Aristotle, when Aquinas makes that reference, it belongs to wisdom to consider the highest cause. By means of that cause, we are able to form a most certain judgment about other causes. And according thereto, all things should be set in order. Right? So the, the wise person understands the causes. And that's understood uh, to mean not just like the efficient cause, but the four causes, which includes a kind of explanation of the meaning of the thing or what it is and why it is. And if you understand those causes, then you can set things in order. 
Now, the highest cause may be understood in two ways, either simply or in some particular genus. Accordingly, he that knows the highest cause in any particular genus and by, and by its means is able to judge and set in order all the things that belong to that genus is said to be wise in that genus. So Aquinas then gives a, an example which will help make this kind of abstract point a little clearer, I think. He uses the example of medicine or architecture. Okay, how, how is the one who is wise in medicine uh, ordering things or having a higher perspective? In medicine, you have, say, the doctor who is understanding the, the health of the person and then orders medicine from the pharmacist. So the pharmacist is engaged in the activity of medicine in a certain way by creating some kind of chemical compound for you to consume. But the pharmacist is being directed by the doctor. The pharmacist is not simply able to determine what the best medication for you is. He can give maybe some opinions here and there, but really it's the doctor who has the the wisdom because he has the perspective of the health of the whole person. And so in this order, the order of health, the doctor is the wise, the wise one. And likewise, the architect. In the practice of building, if you're building a church, you may have lots of artisans working on the church. You might have the, the foreman of the job who is making sure that the deliveries arrive and that each workman is working on the right thing today. But the architect, in a certain way, is in charge of them all. And by the plan he has generated is the one who is making sure that all of the subordinate uh, workers in this enterprise are producing what is supposed to uh, come from their activity. So the architect is, in a certain sense, wise, because he understands most fully why the building is being built and what its form is, so the blueprint is most perfectly in the mind of the architect. And then he's going to uh, determine what materials need to be used, and he's going to give instructions to the people putting the materials together. So there you have the four causes really in the architect in a, in a higher way. Well, we can do this with various uh, gen genuses, right? We can talk about medicine or architecture or building. We could talk about politics or economics, but is there some order of knowing, some discipline that is higher than them all, that unites them all, that in a certain way is able to see them all in the light of a higher perspective? And Aquinas thinks that the answer to that is yes, because when you know in the natural order being, in a way you have reach the widest possible category. So if you become wise in the order of being as being, and you understand the cause of being, what it is, and above all, if you understand its first cause, then you are reaching the perspective of true philosophical wisdom. And so... Different sciences, Aquinas would say, or analyze reality in different ways, according to different, the word he would use is different formalities, different 
perspectives, different sorts of inquiry. They use a different kind of light, you might say, to analyze an object or to analyze a, a subject matter. So you have, for example, uh, I mean, we could just take a very simple example to understand um, how Aquinas understands the distinction between different modes of inquiry. Think about an orange. You know, you have an orange here. You can think about this one object, which is the orange, which we call the material object, under different formalities. You could think about the orange as colored. And this would be in the science of optics. You could think of the orange as throwable. And this would be in the science of physics. You could think of the orange as round. And this would be in geometry. You could think of the orange as healthy. This is in the, the discipline of medicine, right? You could think of the orange as a product of an orange tree, as, or as a, a seed-bearing uh, fruit. Now you would be in the discipline of biology or botany, something like that. Okay, you see, there's all these different ways of considering the orange. Aquinas would say these are different formalities, different ways of regarding the same object. So you can divide the sciences up, or the, the ways that we can think about the world, according to these different kind of formal objects and the way that the science proceeds. So there are some uh, forms of knowledge that are practical. They're ordered towards some practical outcome, an end. Building would be like this, the science of architecture. But also something like uh, politics. Insofar as politics aims at the good for our human community. Or ethics concerning what I should do in my life. Virtue, the pursuit of virtue, the avoidance of vice, things like that. We could talk then also about purely speculative disciplines. These are things that are not directly ordered to some activity, but simply are ordered to the truth that it contemplates. And Aquinas divides speculative sciences as they're abstracted from matter and change, or motion, he says. So physics, or natural philosophy, philosophy of nature generally speaking, deals with things that are material and changeable. They're in matter and in motion. So there we would talk about things like uh, what is change, what is time, uh, what is the essence of a natural thing or the, a natural kind, uh, generation and corruption, and so forth. That could include in the contemporary university things like uh, biology, studying animal life, or what we would call modern physics, uh, visible things, optics. Aquinas would also include things like the soul. And that's where he would probably put the study of psychology. So the soul is looking at what are the powers of the human being, not powers intrinsically of sense so much, but also uh, these spiritual powers that we have and the passions that arise in us because we are bodily creatures but also spiritual. Another sort of 
speculative science, abstracts from matter and change or matter and motion. And here we've really stepped out of the realm of philosophy of nature to mathematics, which simply looks at quantity. You're abstracting from matter and you're just thinking about numerical quantity. But ultimately, the highest science, according to Aquinas, is the science that abstracts from quantity as well and just considers being, to be, existence, what is. And when you reach that level, Aquinas thinks, you're acquiring a kind of wisdom that englobes everything because anything that you would study, you would study only insofar as it is. So the mind is thus able to rise up from sense knowledge and through these various sciences so that, at least for some, it's ultimately able to contemplate the highest things available to the gaze of reason. But Aquinas thinks there is a higher way of knowing even than this, and that's what I'll end with, and that is a higher light that God is able to reveal to us that gives us to know things that our senses and our natural knowledge would not have access to. That's the light of faith. And this is the fourth text that you have on your handout. The rational creature sees in the light of God. We do not mean a light created by God, which is what Genesis 1 speaks of, let, the, let there be light. He's, Aquinas is commenting on Psalm 35, in your light we see light. Rather, we see in your light, namely that by which you shine, speaking of God here, that by which God shines, which is a likeness of your substance. Brute animals do not participate in this light, but the rational creature does. So there's a, an intelligible light possible to the rational creature because we have spiritual souls capable of transcending matter and understanding. And this gives us the possibility of three shares in the divine light. The first, he says is in natural knowledge, for man's natural reason is nothing other than the brilliance of divine splendor in the soul, on account of which splendor man is in the image of God. This is, this is what we've been talking about, the light of natural reason. But there is a higher light than that, which is offered to us in this life. The light of grace, he says here. Sometimes he will speak of it as the light of faith. This light is a light by which we come to know something that transcends what the natural light of reason is able to give us, but nonetheless gives us a real grasp of reality. And we'll talk in our next session more about that light and the two ways, the two wisdoms that arise in this life uh, from this light of grace. It's the, the wisdom which is theology, which is based on divine revelation, where the mind goes to work on what God has revealed and comes to some grasp of what God has revealed, some understanding. And then the higher gift, also a gift of grace, which is the gift of wisdom. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit and it corresponds to a kind of mystical insight 
into the nature of reality. Something even higher than theological knowledge itself is able to give us gives us a kind of connatural connection with God, a certain experience directly of God who is the cause of all that is, and even more than that, as we learn by divine revelation, is our Father and our Savior and our friend. Let me just conclude by noting that there's a third light that Aquinas mentions here at the end of this text number four. This is the light of glory. Now this light, this is the light of the beatific vision. That is the light of seeing God face to face. That's only possible to us in the next life. So Aquinas doesn't think that this is a light that's offered to us in this world, but it's the fullest possible participation of the rational creature in this light who is God, when we will see God and therefore be made like him in this light.